out of here this morning. It's beautiful weather. The change has come. Now it's time to start cutting grass and weeding and planting and all the other wonderful things that we get to do this season. Um, before I launch into the book of Second Peter, I just want to give a little testimony. You know, a lot these songs were powerful, and I'm I'm always grateful. Um, after our times of worship, I just give God glory for our worship team, um, for the the strength and the power of music, and how it uh, just really works the truths that we believe down into our hearts. Um, and as I was thinking about, especially that last song about the Spirit of God, and it's kind of it, it creates this longing. You know, it's like this corporate longing where we all agree we need Christ. This is a broken world. Well, I have a little tennis, uh, a testimony of the power of God, I think, that's um, pretty neat. And that is, uh, several months ago, a tree fell on the, the utility building out there. And if you went by it, you'd see that some of the roof panels were crushed. It wasn't devastating, but um, it needed to be fixed. Water was coming into the building. So insurance covered it, and we hired a contractor to come out there and fix it. And the job was completed this week. And I met him out there to give him his, um, his final payment. Excuse me. To give him his final payment this week. And I uh, handed him the check, and I thanked him for his work, um, Warren Brockwell. And um, he said, well, wait a minute. I got a check for you. And he said, I don't need all this money. I'm going to give some back to the Lord. And uh, he goes to his truck and he writes a check. He said, New Covenant Fellowship, right? I said, yeah. So he writes a check to, uh, to this church for God's work at this church. And I just thought that, is, that was such a God thing. You know, it's not, about, it's not about the amounts that were exchanged, but that the Spirit of God is alive in this world. And he prompted his heart to contribute to the ministry that takes place here, um, right there on the grounds. And that just really meant a lot to me. It was a, an encouragement to me. So praise God for that. Um, while I'm talking about non-sermon material, I'm just going to go ahead and talk about something else that's non-sermon material instead of doing it afterwards. And that is our Easter service, just to, to give a little heads up in planning. We are going to have our traditional Easter service. Um, we will flower the cross. The cross will either be here to flower or will be at the pavilion. If the weather's nice enough, and so far it looks like it's going to be a little chilly, we might have to wear jackets, but we'd like to have it outside if possible. That way there's more room. Uh, we, would, we wouldn't have to wear masks. They would be optional um, and so forth. And for potential visitors, um, it would be nice to have it out there. And what we do, if you have not joined us for that service, is we just bring some fresh flowers or uh, blossoms off of a tree or whatever, and we single file come up and we, we decorate the cross. It's a, it's a beautiful symbolism that takes place. So that's our Easter service. So weather permitting, it will be outside, but if not, it will be in here. And because we don't have the um, room to go on the outside of the aisles, You'll just kind of be dismissed one row at a time. You'll come up and flower the cross and then go back to your seat. We'll make it work. And if the weather is nice, we will also have coffee and donuts at 9 o'clock. The service will be at 10. 
and we'll have coffee and donuts to get a sugar high before worshiping the Lord. And uh, from 9 to 10, if, if it's too cold and we can't do that, we, well, we're not going to do that inside, so we will not have that coffee and donuts. We'll just have our service in here. The other thing is, on Friday, I sent the email out, but we're not going to have our traditional Monday Thursday service. We're going to do something different this year, another first time ever. And we're going to do the Stations of the Cross. We've never done that before. Matter of fact, I've never been a part of this ministry before. It's new to me. Usually there's 14 traditionally. We're going to do eight. We're going to do eight because we have limited space, uh, limited time, and so forth. So I've picked the, uh, the eight pictures that depict the stations or the, the chronological events of Christ when he is judged all the way to when he dies on the cross. So what that's going to look like, this will be Friday. It'll be from 6.30 to 8.30, and it's floating. We might even send out an email like names A to F come at this time and so forth because we don't want a lot of people having to wait outside to kind of wait your turn. But you'll come in here. It's, it, the lights will be dimmed. It's, very, uh, it's a sober service. It's very reflective. It's not at all interactive. So nobody's going to be saying anything to you. Uh, I might greet you at the door or I might say, shh, if you're being too noisy, <laughs> waiting out there. But you're going to come in the door. And I'm assuming, um, Diana, that station one will be here. Are we going to go like this? It'll go this way. Glad I asked. Okay. So you'll come straight through the doors to station one. It will direct you. And you go to each station. There'll be a scripture. And a picture of what um, Christ was doing. And there will also be a reading. It's like a meditation, a reflective meditation. And the idea is that you see this and then you, you just have a moment with the Lord at each station. So when you get to the eighth station, there's actually a ninth station which will be communion. That will be in the back of the church. And Dwight Ray will be there. Uh, and basically, you take your family through. If you're here by yourself, you go by yourself. You take your family through, and um, you will end with the Lord's Supper. And Dwight will lead you through that. And we hope to have the, the head of the household kind of lead his family through communion. So Dwight will be facilitating that. It'll all be self-explanatory when we get here, when you get here. So that's um, Stations of the Cross on Friday. We have a few more announcements after the sermon, but I wanted to do mine before the sermon. We're in the book of Second Peter. Peter talks a lot about God's word. He talks a lot about truth. And the last scripture we examined in this book was in chapter 2. And the Apostle Paul, I mean the Apostle Peter says this to the saints of that age. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And what we learn from that is that God's word is God's word. Uh, what we have in the Bible from the original manuscripts as God inspired men to write things down, to pen things. And so Christians are people of the book because we have the very words of God. And because of the very words of God, they are without error. They're infallible. And because they're without error and infallible, they are completely trustworthy. God's not just a truthful God. He's a good God. He's a loving God. And so all of his words, even though some of them are hard, 
They are for our good and to His glory. There's nothing in here that is intended to harm us, but only to help us and to redeem us from our lost state. And therefore, we are to approach God's Word with great respect and with a submissive heart. Come to it. God, you mean this for my good. And so not reject it, not resist it, but embrace it. That's how we are to approach Scripture. It's an amazing, an amazing book. I don't think there's a book on the earth that has ever been criticized and picked apart so much as God's holy word. But it was written by, over the ages, uh, written by 40 different authors over from at least three different continents. God, Holy Spirit, inspiring this person over here and this person in this geographical location over a span of approximately 2,000 years. And yet the message is the same. It's unified because it came from the same author from God. And so in order to encourage the saints to grow in their knowledge of God, Peter upholds the word of God and how true it is. Now, in today's passage, we find, unfortunately, something that is uh, the antithesis of men that speak for God. In this passage is a very dire warning about People who will speak for God, but they're not telling you the truth. They're false teachers. They're not moved by the Holy Spirit. They are moved only by their own flesh or perhaps by demonic influence. They don't approach God's word with humility and, and a submissive heart as, is, as it is supposed to be. Uh, authoritative to us. It's the final word that speaks into our lives pertaining to all things life and godliness. And so Peter's going to warn us in chapter 2 about the grave dangers of the false teachers, of listening to what they say, of their message and their lifestyle. And we find that they deny the very God that they claim to serve or speak for. Now, we're going to find some harsh words in this chapter. Some choice words. Peter does not hold back when he explains and describes these false teachers. What they think and what they do. It's, it's pretty rough, as a matter of fact. He, he has choice descriptions of them. Because they they slander God. They misrepresent a holy God. And in this, he assures us that we do not want to fall prey to the false teachings, the many false teachings and the different nuances of false teachings that are out in the world. Because eternal life and eternal death are at stake. That's how important truth is. That's how important God's word is. So our lives are at stake. Our well-being is at stake. We want to be very, very careful. So Peter's harsh. This is almost like kind of shaking somebody. Pete, you really need to be careful. And sometimes that's the most loving thing we can do. Sometimes we need to be shaken in matters that are that important. 
shaken out of a stupor, shaken out of compromise, so that we understand how important this is. So Peter, in his letter, he's greeted them, he's blessed them, he's encouraged the saints. And now, as a part of the Christian walk, he warns the saints of what will keep them from growing in the faith. I've broken this chapter into three uh, sermons. We're going to look this morning at understanding heresy because he talks about false teaching and heresy. Next time, we'll look at the consequences of heresy and then what I'm calling the quintessential heretic. And that's just because Peter goes into great detail describing the kind of lives they live and what they're after and how they think. And if he takes the time to do that, we're going to take the time to look at those things. Um, This morning, we're just going to look at the first three verses, but I want to go ahead and read chapter 2. It's just 22 verses. It won't take long. But I want to read it so we understand all of Peter's stirrings of thought. And, of course, this is inspired by God. So this is the Holy Spirit speaking to the saints in that day and, of course, speaking to us today. So let's prepare our hearts for the reading of God's Word. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words, Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them, day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Their blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions, while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, 
Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Harsh words. What a dire warning. And how descriptive they are of what's going on in the physical realm. But also what's happening in the spiritual realm. As truth goes out and also as falsehood goes out. So the first three verses. False prophets, they arose upon the people, they will arise. And you can see as throughout the letter that he talks first that they'll, they're, they're going to come. But you can see they're already there because they're feasting among them. And they bring their destructive heresies, denying the master who bought them. Bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow. Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. For their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. So as the Spirit of God moves upon the people that He desires to pen His words, to gift the world with His truths... These truths that we count on, these truths that we hope in, these these truths that we cling to, that we embrace, that we, we grow in. History also shows that there will be others that will come claiming to have more truth from God that's maybe not in here. Or taking the truth that is in here and twisting it to mean or sound like it means something from God that it doesn't, but it's really just their own flesh, their own sensuality. It's man wanting to get his way. It's a perversion of God's Word. And Jesus in His own teaching warns us that this is something that Christians have to be careful of. His followers, that we need to discern God and His character and His Word so that we are not enticed. And Peter also describes believers that are kind of teetering on the edge. Those that are, he says, are unsteady. 
So within the church, within the body of Christ, we have people that are rooted and grounded, but we also have people, maybe they're new believers, or they haven't taken the time to dive into God's Word so that they really can, can understand and feel the real thing. And it doesn't take a whole lot to push them off their balance, their unsteady, their theological balance, to believe in things. Now, as a, as a believer, um, as a young believer... God transformed my life. Like I had one of those dramatic conversions. And all of a sudden I am loving God. I am loving life with God's glasses as I see. And I'm, and I'm seeing God's beautiful creation. I'm experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I was very gullible. Because I thought I have been delivered from a world of darkness and lies. Now I'm in the church of truth and believers who have also been delivered to these things. And I thought that anybody who called themselves a Christian would only speak or write the truth. Therefore, everything I read, I assumed, was from God. Because Christians would never lie. Or Christians would never come up with teachings that weren't right out of the Bible. Fortunately, and I think maybe some of you have the same kind of testimony. Fortunately, God's Spirit preserved me from going too far in the wrong direction. But there are so many teachings out there. There's so many books that you can get. Not even books anymore. Everything's online. You don't even have to go to the library anymore. You just type in a few words. There's so many things out there that falsely rep, misrepresent God and His Word. And know this, you have been warned. If you read God's Word, you have been warned because throughout God's Word, from Old Testament to the New Testament, there are constant warnings about false teaching. The twisting of God's Word. So we cannot be naive. There are teachings that are just a little bit painful. They're really not that... They're, they're false, but they're just not that devastating. But when you come to the teachings that really define life and meaning and the big questions, those are the ones that can really, really damage us. They can cause us to take very, very painful and destructive paths. Not just in our worship of God, but everything that we experience here on earth. They, they thrust us into that evil current that's constantly pulling at us that Peter talked about earlier. We can't just wear Christian floaties and think everything's going to be alright because there's an evil current to this world. We have to constantly be on our guard and fight against it. And there are certain lifestyles that will suck us in to this destruction that Peter says it's not asleep. We'll talk about that. And we live in a world who if they believe in God, a lot of them think that there's no such thing as judgment from a loving God. That's contradictory. We'll get away with all this. It just gets swept under the rug, right? God is not asleep, nor is his wrath asleep. I don't know what it's like now. Times have changed. Um, but when I was in driver's ed... The way I did driver's ed to get my license was you, um, you had to take a course. And you went a couple times, I think it was once or twice a, a night, 
No, it was once, once a week, one night, like a Wednesday night. You went to driver's ed. You did a lot of in-class instruction. And um, you also did the road instruction, too, with the instructor. But for the most part, it was boring. I just wanted to get my Just give me my license. I already know everything I need to know. I've already been driving. You just don't know it. All that kind of stuff. But it was pretty boring. But there was this one night that everybody was excited about. And excited kind of in a, in a weird way. This was the night that was not boring because back in that day, they showed real live footage of accidents. Real live footage of accidents where, where they didn't hold anything back. And you saw lots of mangled metal broken glass and blood you saw crushed bodies i mean this this was and now nowadays you can see that like with a flip of a push of a button back and then you back in those days you weren't you didn't have access to all this stuff so when you saw it in real life it it made an effect on you 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 saw dead bodies you saw crushed bodies you saw people wailing and the whole idea was to inform you that as wonderful and freeing as your license is and getting out on the road, it opens the doors to many things. There are dangers out there. This can happen to you if you are not careful. Sometimes it's these kind of wake-up warnings of the potential destruction it's the most loving, kind thing to do. I needed to see that movie. I had that young teenager mentality that I can do anything, just give me my license. Come to find out, I actually did have a few accidents after I got my license, but that's not part of it. doesn't really fit into the sermon here. So anyway, this is what Peter's talking about. It's gloomy. It's intense. We're all on a pilgrimage. We're all on a road, right, to eternal life. We sang about it this morning. And along this road, there are pitfalls and dangers that we need to be careful. So this is good for our soul, as Peter warns us. What is heresy? He says, those who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. You know, we, we don't hear much about heresies or we don't use that terminology that much in the church anymore. A lot of heresies have been quelled or at least they've been identified. So a lot of times we know we, we know what religions to stay away from and what teachings to stay away from. And we often think of heresy as an antiquated word. You know, it was very popular back in the day when the church was first being founded and then in the uh, the Reformation days, you had witch hunts, you had all kinds of people being killed and martyred for false teaching in the ancient church. So our, our working knowledge of this word heresy, working knowledge, if you will, is is that it's it's false church doctrine. It's false teaching pertaining to ecclesiology or matters of the church. You have true teachings you have false teachings 
Let me just name a few that will bore you, and you'll be glad that I'm not. I'm only going to name them and not teach on them. Docetism taught that Christ's body was not real; it was just a phantom. So when he suffered on the cross, he wasn't really suffering on the cross because he was just kind of a phantom figure. Montanism, no relation. A, 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 he was a false prophet who taught that the word that that the spirit was still inspiring prophets and that what he said was equal to what was in the word of God. And it turns out that what he said was very strict moralistically. And he even said, don't get married. And, and if, if you're any tough, just if you're in any kind of hard place, just stay there for the glory of God. It was a, it was a hard, hard, hard message. New prophecy. Adoptionism. Holds that Jesus was adopted as God's son, but is not God incarnate, is not God, or a true part of the Holy Trinity. So you see, you have all these these different positions in describing the character of God and the message of God. Sabellianism or modalism claim that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're three modes of the same person, but they're not one. And Christianity teaches that we have three in one person. Just a few more. Arianism taught that, or Arius taught that Christ was created by God, but he's not God. You have that with Jehovah's Witnesses. You have that teaching with uh, Mormonism today. Jesus is not God. He's a son. He was created by God. Pelagianism taught that humans are born without sin. They can achieve holiness on their own without the need of God's grace. And lastly, Gnosticism. We hear a lot about this, and um, Corky and John Rosima, as they teach through New Testament books, have taught us about Gnosticism. Gneo, the Greek word, it's to know. It's like this subjective, almost secret society. You need to be in the know to really be close to God. Very subjective. So these are matters of ecclesiology. And they're, they're lying about either the character of God or what God says and reveals in His Word. And it always amazes me that you can go all the way back to Genesis. And I mentioned this last time. And what did the enemy say to the first man and woman on earth? But did God really say? I mean, that should clue us in immediately to the importance of getting God right and getting His Word right. Because He took what God really did say and He twisted it. Used, used God's own pure product. Took a few words out of context, what it might mean, and deceived mankind. And let me just say that we... We're not created to figure out everything on our own. We were created to always be dependent on God. We are not God. We are not gods. We were created to, to need God, to, in, to only find our ultimate joy, meaning, and purpose in God. And so what He says to us and how He defines our lives, without it, we're nothing. We're lost. It's a good thing to be dependent on God. And Satan, like the world that we live in today, offers us so many other options and so many other lifestyles and choices. 
There's the one way, the truth. You know, in the New Testament, as more and more people got saved, the Christian way, the disciples, it became known as the way. Interesting terminology. It's, it's a way of life. You know, you can live this way and you can live that way, but this is the way to live. And here's what God had to say about false prophets in the Old Testament out of Deuteronomy 18. The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall be slapped on the hand. Go to bed without dinner. That same prophet shall die. You know, don't poison the living water. People are trying to poison the living water. Don't poison the living water. And in this passage, it's interesting because Peter doesn't, he doesn't take the route of going after articulating the actual doctrinal teaching here, the false teaching. He more describes what the false teachers are after and how they're thinking. That's why we're going to spend some time in that. You think, well, what is the false teaching here? What are they even saying that's so wrong? Peter doesn't nail it down, but he does inadvertently tell us what it is and has to do with sensuality. It has to do with licentiousness. They're taking sexual freedoms that they should not take. Uh, Verse 2, many will follow the sensuality. Then verse 10, they indulge in lust of defiling passion. And then 19, they're slaves of corruption. So these false teachers are not just engaging in sexual immorality, but they're teaching it. And most scholars believe this. It gets down to um, antinomianism. In other words, that God's grace is so freeing that it even frees us from some of His own laws. And so, they they would teach you to be free in in the grace of God. And you don't have to worry about holding back these these inhibitions of your sexual desires and proclivities. God freed you from that. You know how hard it is to hold back and to be self-controlled. Well, you're even more godly or closer to God by living out His grace and the freedom. So let's just have a free-for-all. Some of this happened in the churches back then happens in some churches today on a smaller scale. Because we live by grace, what you do with your body, it doesn't really matter. And Christ would want you to enjoy yourself like this. Now that appeals to the flesh. How would they come up with such teaching? How does somebody even begin to try to get away with this kind of thinking when you think, but wait a minute, God's word's pretty clear about Modesty and purity. Well, we find out that in verse 10, they despise authority. So even though they they, they want to speak authoritatively, they are their own authority because they're not going to listen to anybody else, even God. Now, this is very interesting because this is a key to understanding the root of false teaching. The root of false teaching is stemmed in pride. Now that's that's where you can begin to understand it because what you have is people who are claiming to 
be in the know or to have discovered the real truth that God wants us to know. And because of pride, see, pride, uh, it, it blinds us to the obvious when our heads get too big. And so rather than just think reasoning through, you know, a lot of people who came before me and spent way more time on understanding Holy Scripture, who know the original languages, who sat around tables and hashed things out. They, I probably should consider at least what they have to say on the matter. But pride causes them to say, actually, no, I've read it for myself. And I know what God means by this. Pride is that dangerous. I remember that um, when I first became a pastor, there was uh, a a person that um, started getting into dangerous false teaching. And I would talk to this person and I would present scripture after scripture. And I'm thinking to myself, how can you argue with this? And I was so frustrated that it got to the point where you just can't like reason through how we know truth of scripture. You, 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 you look at the context and the history and you, you bring all your gear into it and then you come out with it. And I couldn't understand how this was not having any effect. And so I um, actually long story short, wound up calling a a renowned New Testament scholar from Reformed Theological Seminary. Um, I was very honored to actually be able to reach this person. We had a phone conversation. I started talking about the matter, and he gave me some helpful scriptures. He said, but look, let me just tell you, the problem is pride. That's That's the root problem that you're really dealing with here. It's like, so that's... That makes sense. That's why even scriptures don't seem to make an impact. Because I'm dealing with pride. You have people. We have people today that because of their pride, they're going to throw out church history. They're going to throw out thousands of years of scholarship and lived Christian experience in favor for their own interpretation and understanding. And then try to win others over to that kind of teaching. In this case, in the name of grace and in the name of freedom, freedom, they perverted Christian doctrine of sexual morality. And they secretly brought these things in. And as they did all of this, it says that they, Peter says, they're denying the very master who they claim who bought them. And therefore, they have brought upon themselves swift destruction. There are consequences to what we believe. There are consequences to what we tell others. It's not a light thing. The Bible's not an experimentation. So, heresies in some way... Diminish Christ. If you're a believer, the last thing we want to do is diminish His holy name. To diminish the work that He did that we're about to celebrate for the Easter Easter season. To diminish the love and the work and the sacrifice of Christ and the lengths that He went to to redeem us. And yet false teachings undermined it and cheapened it. There's two 
two ways that Christ can be undermined or cheapened. He can be cheapened by what you say, the actual doctrine, or he can be cheapened by how we live. And in this passage, Peter spends more time in, in showing how Christ was diminished in the lifestyle of these false teachers than in the actual words and the doctrine of what they were speaking. And it belittles him. 1 Corinthians 6.20, the Apostle Paul says, You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your bodies. The idea is that when we come to Christ, there are things that we give up so that we can now use our minds and our bodies to be godly, to conform to the image of Christ. And these teachers are teaching the exact opposite when it comes to sexual morality. They're saying, actually, there's things you need to adopt into your Christian life with your free graces. You need to be more promiscuous in this area. So a heretic is a person who teaches what blatantly contradicts essential teachings, not just little things that may or may not have that big of, a, of an impact, but essential teachings of the Christian faith. Not only are they promiscuous, Peter says, but they're greedy. So they want your bodies and they want your money. And that's one of the things that drives them. They're marketing their teaching for shameful blame. Now, that would be a good time to stop right there, but I'm not. Because I have one more thing I think is very important. And I want to share this with you because as New Covenant Fellowship, I know you guys. And I know that our big problem, your big problem, is not falling prey. Very, very uh, uncommon because you're so rooted in the truth. And here God's word is held in high esteem. We, we cling to it. We have to have it for our lives. We don't trust ourselves. And so I don't think overall that these kind of false teachings are something that uh, we're, we're faced with on a daily basis. But let me tell you something about the word heresy. The word heresy, and we, we said for a working definition, it's of matters of ecclesiology or church. But it's bigger than that. The word actually has to do with a school of thought. So you're talking about not just schools of thought within the church. Schools of thought within, uh, within Judaism, when Jesus was there, you had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. They all read God's word and they came, they walked away with three different schools of thought of how we should apply it, how we should live. Pharisees didn't live the same as the, as the um, Sadducees and the Essenes and so forth. But it also pertains to matters outside of the church in this way. If it's a school of thought, what it means is, is there is such a thing as an absolutely true school of thought about all matters of life, even outside the church. Now, I know they rub, they rub shoulders and there's specific teachings in the Scripture about how you should conduct yourself as a church, whereas it doesn't apply to unbelievers. But we are all under, believer or unbeliever, no matter what religion we are, we are under this school of thought, and it's called truth as God has revealed it. We discover God's truths. We don't create our own truths. God created all truth when He brought this into existence. 
And he allows us to discover them. And I say this because the school of thought in our culture, that's the Christian school of thought. That is that God is the God of truth. And we discover it. So we trust him above all other things. We just discover what's already there. Already, we build on the rock. God's the rock. It's already there. The school of thought today that is very dangerous because it, it probes into the deep issues of life. Why are we here? How, I, how should I live? What should I do with my money? What should I do with my body? How should I treat people? How do I know what's really right and wrong? The school of thought in our culture is that truth is a social construct. Truth is something that society decides what it is. It's not already there. Why is this so dangerous? Because before our very eyes, we are watching truth change. And things that we grew up thinking were absolute truths are now being uh, marketed as optional truths or actually not truth at all. They're lies. So things that we think are set in concrete are no longer set in concrete. And our culture is telling us that it's time to change how we think about certain moralities. Things that are right and wrong. It's untethered. There's no longer this absolute thing where, that we can all stand on and come to any kind of agreement. Is it any wonder there's such divisiveness in our country? When you can't even agree on the definition of truth? Who's the final authority? We would say God. They would say actually we are. And mostly elitism. Now, these kind of falsehoods are working their way into our culture. We see them. As we stream Netflix and Prime, we hear them on the radio, through different forms of entertainment. There are messages. There's a false school of thought about why we're here and what we should do with our lives. What we should do with our bodies, our money, our work. What marriage looks like. And God says, no, I have revealed to you what life is all about and where you're going. And our culture is saying, actually, we're, we're, uh, we're still trying to figure all this out. But right now, we think this is how you should live. And this is how. You see, it comes from man's mind. And God says, we're fallen. We can't trust our own minds. So it's this false school of thought that I think that, that confronts us on a daily basis more than the knock on the door from a Jehovah's Witness. We have to think very carefully about how important God's Word is, what we allow into our minds, what we allow into our homes, understanding there's a difference between what comes in from the world and what comes in from God. In that sense, false teaching, a lie is a lie, and false teaching is very much alive, and we need to be informed and stay in Formed. We need to learn to smell a fish when we smell a fish. And lastly, as I began this series, my goal is that we would be way more captivated with God, His truth, His splendor, His glory, His character, what He's doing, than any distraction that this world would offer us. A school of thought and truth. Building on the rock. May God bless the preaching of his word.
Speaking about building on the rock, speaking about this message of redemption that applies not just to the church, but it applies to the whole world. It's God's school of thought. Uh, Noah's going to come and share with us for five or ten minutes about uh, something that God is doing in his life and how God is stirring his heart to bring God's message to the world. Noah? Then I think we have some announcements, um, in-house announcements, and uh, and then wherever Eric went, he can come and oh, he's over there this time. Okay, switched on me. Then Eric can close us. It's good morning again. Um, as Pastor Paul mentioned, I have an opportunity that I would like to share with you all. Um, but before I share what this opportunity is, I'd like to uh, take some time to explain how God led me to this place. Um, so nearly two years ago, uh, as many of you know, I graduated high school. Uh, things in my mind were quite all right, and I was like, yeah, let's get it, graduating high school, a whole life ahead stuff. Um, but God, in, in many different ways that I can't explain all of them, I'll try and condense as much as possible, he, his spirit started working in me. And uh, two, two main points uh, that I'd like to share with you all. First being uh, when our church about two years ago was learning about the king and his kingdom uh, in the gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew 28, uh, the final chapter, Jesus commands his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And kind of as an out, out flowing out of that, uh, my family and I began watching a documentary series about missionaries who heard the call of God to go and make disciples and walked out in obedience. Um, and so as God's revealing those things to me, and I'm just kind of like, whoa, Lord, you know, can you just give me some direction? I started praying, Lord, how should I respond to what you are teaching me? And it was in that time, about a year ago or so, um, that God spoke to me very powerfully in his word. I'd like to share that word with you all. It's 2 Corinthians 5. 18 through 21. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. And he has given to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the verses that follow in chapter 6 says, As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. And I tell you, now is the time of God's favor, and now is the day of salvation. So I I hope that you can feel the primary thrust of this passage that God was speaking to me, that God was and still is doing a reconciling work through Jesus Christ, and he has given his people an integral part in that. So looking back, this prompting was the spirit lighting a fire of joy-filled desire. That rhymes. Um, to see 
people reconciled to God, to see God worshipped more fully in my own life and in the lives of those whom he loves from every people, tribe, and tongue. And you may see where I'm going with this. Uh, My heart especially went out to those who have no sustainable gospel witness, those those two billion people who have never had a chance to hear and respond to the good news that they can be reconciled to God in Christ. And so it's with that that I'm overjoyed to announce to you all that God has given me a response or given me a chance to respond to what he's been showing me by embarking on a two-month missions internship program to North Africa this summer. In June and July, uh, my team will study language in North Africa, live and minister alongside North African believers, be trained and mentored by experienced cross-cultural gospel workers, learn to navigate a foreign culture and customs, and build relationships in order to share the beautiful, great gospel. And I'll be going with an organization called Frontlines Mission International. Frontline Missions International was one of the only organizations that I was seriously considering uh, going with over this summer that actually had missions internships available uh, because of COVID. Um, And so I can see God's sovereignty working in and through that. Um, And so I'm asking you all, as I'm before you today, uh, to please participate in two ways, if you would. Uh, the first, naturally, anytime God works in and through individuals, Satan does everything in his power to shut it down. And so I ask you all to join me in praying three things. First, that God would prepare my heart to count the cost of proclaiming the gospel in these hostile areas and yet be bold in my witness for my risen king. And that I would walk in humility because I have so much to learn from my brothers and sisters in North Africa. And second, that after this trip, God would continue to give me direction on how I should join in his work, whether by going or by sending. And third, uh, that doesn't have so much to do with me. Uh, The third is that God would continue his great and beautiful work of freeing and transforming lives and building his kingdom in North Africa. And uh, the the second way that you all can be um, supporting this is supporting this trip financially. this, this afternoon, I'm hoping to post a fundraising link to both the NCF info chain and as well as the um, NCF Facebook community page. So if you all are led, are so led to give to this uh, endeavor financially, that link will be on there. Um, and if you do not... Um, If you are not able to access the Internet or if you do not have a credit card that you can use, uh, there will also be a physical address provided where you can send your donations there. So, yeah. That's what God's doing. And um, I just want to conclude by thanking you all for uh, this time, for hearing what God's doing through me and also uh, how he has worked in his sovereignty and given me a chance, even amid COVID-19 and all this stuff, uh, to respond to what he's been showing me. Um, and again, with COVID, you know, something could, a switch could be flipped and suddenly all international travel is, uh, is, is no longer an option and I could end up staying here this summer. But whether I stay here or whether I go, uh, now is the time of God's favor and today is the day of salvation for you and for me, for this county, for this country, for North Africa and to the ends of the earth for his glory among the nations. So I thank you all very much.